All right, well, I do have a few announcements for you all this morning. First of all, you may have noticed we have a a different guy on the stage this morning. Colin Bates has joined us. Colin, if you'll stand up, and Dana, his wife, if you'll stand up too. We are really excited to have them um, part of our Southwood family. Colin has actually uh, come onto our staff as our full-time worship coordinator. So he leads worship at Southwood, but he actually coordinates worship for the whole church, both campuses. Um, We're really excited. He brings a lot of expertise, a lot of skill at helping us to worship well. And he comes at a perfect time because my second announcement is that after a lot of discussion with the elders and deacons and staff, we have prayerfully decided to launch our second service this coming fall. So at the end of this summer, we're going to start a second service at Southwood. We don't know the exact time or day yet that we'll start it. We're still figuring that out. It'll be somewhere around 11 o'clock. We're really excited, though, for a couple reasons. First of all, we have some dedicated volunteers who've been taking care of our kids for two years now, and that whole time they haven't been able to come to church. So we're really excited to offer a service for they for them to attend with their families. And then second, we're really excited for what this is going to do for the outreach of our campus. Um, from talking to people and looking at this town, most people in Bryan College Station who are not yet churched, they think of church being at around 11 o'clock. That's the normal time that people in this town typically go to church. And unfortunately, we don't have anything to offer them. So we're excited to add this new service. Uh, We think it's going to really be a great tool for outreach for us to invite our friends and neighbors who 930 is a little early for them to come and join us at Southwood. So again, the details are still in the works, but let me ask you guys, please, if you will take this summer to pray for this second service. I I want us all as a congregation to pray that God would use this to reach hundreds and hundreds of new people in our community who don't know the Lord or who know the Lord but are not plugged into a church, please pray that God would grow this service to draw new people into his kingdom and to grow what he's doing here in Bryan College Station. So please join us in prayer and we'll fill you guys in in the details as the summer progresses. Finally, third announcement is we're starting our new sermon series today, our summer sermon series. You have a blue uh, handout in the bulletin that goes through kind of the the list of who's preaching where. There is some flip-flopping between campuses, so watch that if you attend both campuses. Um, This summer series that we're studying is about the unlikely heroes of the Old Testament. And I want to kick it off by asking you a question. What makes a person a good hero? In other words, what kind of person would you choose to be a hero? Well, it depends some on on who you ask. Earlier this week, my wife gave me a great present. Uh, She gave me a night out with the guys. So I and a couple pastors went out for a guys movie night. um, And we, you know, we didn't really know what we were going to watch. We ended up watching this movie called Prince of Persia. And it's okay. It's nothing to write home about. But it was interesting watching this movie in the midst of putting together this sermon series. And the Prince of Persia revolves around the story of a very typical hero. A hero who's exactly what you'd expect him to be. He's crazy athletic. He can like run up any wall. He's really good in combat. He's, he's courageous. He's bold. He's, he's charming. He's handsome. He's rich. He's a prince. He's exactly what you would expect a hero to be. He fits the definition of a Hollywood hero. Hollywood always chooses heroes who are extraordinary people. They're capable, they're courageous, they're bold, they're confident. Those are the men and women that Hollywood chooses as its heroes. You got Batman, Bruce Wayne. He's good looking, he's intelligent, he's got billions and billions of dollars. Perfect hero. You got Superman. He's born invincible. Perfect Hollywood hero. Hollywood loves to choose extraordinary people as its heroes. But then you look at the Bible and you find something different. 
real heroes, the men and women who really did change the world, as Scripture records, uh, are, are not extraordinary people. As we look at Scripture this summer, what we're going to learn is that real heroes, the heroes we discover in Scripture, are chosen from among very unlikely people. God loves to choose unlikely heroes to change the world. Unlikely heroes to advance his kingdom. You got people like Moses. When God shows up to Moses in the burning bush uh, in the desert, Moses is like 80 years old. He's, he's quite advanced in years. He's actually an exiled criminal at the time who's fled Egypt. He's a sheep herder. He's not very significant in world affairs. He, he can't speak publicly to save his life. He's, he's not the guy you choose. Uh, We'll learn about Ruth. Ruth is not at all the kind of hero you would choose. First of all, she's a woman in a male-dominated world. In the ancient world, you'd never expect a woman to become a hero. But not only that, she's a a young woman who's not an Israelite. She's a Gentile, and she's already a widow. Her husband's died. She's not at all who you'd expect to be a hero. God loves to choose unlikely men and women to be his heroes. And that's exemplified in our guy this morning. We're going to look at the life of Abraham. You can actually turn to Genesis chapter 11. We'll pick it up there. We're going to look at Abraham. Abraham is a very unlikely man to become a hero in the storyline of Scripture. Now, what do we know about Abraham? Well, we know that name. We've heard the name Abraham all throughout our lives. Abraham, it turns out, ends up being one of the most famous men in all of world history, one of the great heroes of the Bible. Abraham is the father of the whole nation of Israel. Abraham will be a a, a paragon, a model of faithfulness and righteousness to billions of Jews and Christians. Uh, He's one of the greatest heroes in all of Scripture, this man Abraham. But uh, he doesn't start his story as a hero. I want you to look towards the end of chapter 11. uh, This is the passage where we first meet Abraham. Look with me starting in verse 31 of chapter 11. Terah took Abram, his son, Abraham was called Abram at this time, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Now we get a lot of significant background information in this verse. Most significant is it tells us where Abraham is from. He's from a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. It's that star down there. It's in modern-day southern Iraq on the border of the Euphrates River. Um, It's been a city for a very long time, 5,000 years that Ur has been a city. In Abraham's day, it was populated by about 360,000 people. That was a huge city in the ancient world. It was a center of industry and of culture. It was especially known for arts and crafts. It was really kind of like the New York of Abraham's day. But all was not rosy in Ur. It was a city that was dedicated to idolatry, to the worship of false gods. In particular, the whole city was literally built around the worship of the Sumerian moon god, who ironically was named Sin. The whole city was dedicated to the worship of this god, Sin. Um, And and Abraham's family was no exception. In Joshua 24, Joshua says to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham's whole family served other gods. When you meet Abraham, he's not a worshiper of God. He doesn't know God. Actually, he's a worshiper of false gods. He's an idolater. He worships this false moon god. When we meet Abraham, he's not a hero. He doesn't even look like hero-type material. Abraham looks like a rebel, like a sinner and idolatry. In, in, in fact, when you meet Abraham, he's less a hero, he's more a villain. He's an enemy of God. He's opposed to God. 
It's so fascinating to look at the kind of man God chooses to become this great hero in the storyline of the Bible. He doesn't start as a hero, he starts as a villain. God chooses the most unlikely people to become heroes in the advancement of his kingdom. And it's not like God didn't have other choices. Look with me at chapter 14 of Genesis. Really interesting. There were other people around in Abraham's day, other people who, who in my eyes would have been a better choice by God. Uh, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham goes out and, and wages this battle and he's victorious and he comes back and we meet this really interesting guy named Melchizedek. Look in verse 18 of chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all he had. Now, when we meet Melchizedek, we don't know a ton about him, but we know two significant things. First of all, he's a king, a king of a, of a city named Salem that was probably what would become Jerusalem. He's king of what would become God's city, Jerusalem. Not only is he king, though, he's also a priest of God Most High. And this, this guy is like the exact opposite of Abraham. Here's Abraham, a rebel worshiping false gods. Here's Melchizedek, not just worshiping the true God, he's the priest of the true God. He's representing the true God to people and people to the true God. If I have to pick who's going to be my hero in the storyline of Genesis, I'm going to pick Melchizedek. He's a stud. He's an extraordinary guy, a king of God's city, a priest of God, and yet God doesn't choose him. At this point, Melchizedek falls out of the story. You never hear anything about him again in the rest of the book of Genesis. God surely had plans for Melchizedek, but God doesn't choose Melchizedek to be the hero of the storyline of Scripture. He chooses Abraham. He chooses the rebel. He chooses the villain to become the hero. Now, why does God do that? He's got this incredibly capable, extraordinary man in Melchizedek he could have chosen, and he chooses Abraham instead. Why is that? Well, let me explain it by um, pointing you to another movie. For some reason, I was in a movie mood this week, so all these movies kept coming to mind. Maybe you've seen a movie called Stand and Deliver. Great movie. It's based on a, on a true story. In this movie, Edward James Almas plays Jamie Escalante, who's this math teacher brought into a high school in eastern Los Angeles. Um, and, and he's a math teacher who trains his students to pass the AP calculus test. Let me pause for a second. Um, why would they make a movie about a teacher who helps his students pass AP Calculus? There's lots of students passing AP Calculus. I, I passed the AP Calculus test, and they didn't make a movie about my math teacher. Why'd they make a movie about him? Because of the students he taught. It's because he took students who were rebellious, students who were underachievers, students who the whole rest of the school, the whole rest of society has written off as lost causes. He took these incredibly unlikely scholars and he equipped them and enabled them so that all of them passed this incredibly hard test, the AP Calculus test. That's why they make a movie about him, because he's incredible. Because he uh, raised up to be scholars, these incredibly unlikely students. And that's exactly how God operates. God loves to take incredibly broken people, incredibly weak people, limited people, fallen people. He loves to take ordinary people like us and do extraordinary things through them. If all God did was choose extraordinary people, people like Melchizedek, to do extraordinary things, then all we'd say about God is you pick a good team. It's about all the glorious stuff about God. You just pick a good team, but that's not what God does. 
He takes ordinary people, fallen people, broken people. He takes the least likely people and transforms them into the heroes of his kingdom. And why? Because it glorifies God. Because it shows how great he is. He doesn't just pick a good team. He picks a horrible team and transforms them into incredible heroes of the faith. God loves to choose men like Abraham. He loves to choose people who are weak and broken and fallen and foolish and doubting and transform them into heroes. He loves to choose ordinary people just like us. My dad, um, growing up, he, whenever I would struggle with something or fail at something, he loved to say, God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. Well, all of the people we're going to study in the Old Testament this summer were crooked sticks. God chose the crooked sticks of the world to hit the home runs. Because that shows what a great batter he is. He's the best batter on the field. He doesn't need a good bat. He can take a crooked stick and hit a home run. If he can do it with Abraham, he can do it with you. That's why Abraham is in the Bible. That's one of the reasons. If God can hit such a home run with Abraham, if he can change the course of world history through a man as crooked as this, then he can do it through us. No human being on the planet is beyond the reach of God. He can take any person, no matter what sins they've committed, no matter what failures they've experienced, he can take any of us and raise us up to be a hero in the kingdom of God if he can take Abraham. That's the first lesson we learned from Abraham, a lesson that we'll see throughout the summer. God loves to choose unlikely heroes. He loves to choose ordinary people like us. God's not interested in Hollywood heroes. He's interested in people like us. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing that we see about God's interaction in Abraham's life is that God empowered Abraham through grace. God empowers his heroes, all of the heroes of Scripture, with grace. Now, now all heroes in Hollywood movies, they're empowered by something. For, for Peter Parker, Spider-Man, he's empowered by this radioactive spider bite. Um, for Batman, Bruce Wayne, he's empowered by his billion-dollar super gadgets. That's what gives him his power over bad guys. Well, Abraham's no different. He is empowered by something incredible. He's empowered by the grace of God. In the course of Abraham's life, it's really funny that the superpower of Abraham, if you will, um, is the grace of God. It's the grace of God over and over again that enables Abraham to do extraordinary things. Now, uh, just to remind you, God's grace is his undeserved favor, It's his undeserved blessing in Abraham's life. Throughout Abraham's life, you will see that grace as the foundation that makes Abraham special. The thing that sets him apart, that allows him to be a hero. You see God's grace at work in the call of Abraham. Look at chapter 12. Look at chapter 12. So right at the end of chapter 11, we met this incredibly unlikely hero. This guy who's, he's not a hero, he is a villain. God shows up in his life, beginning of chapter 12, and look what God says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." God's relationship with Abraham begins with promises, very significant promises given to an unworthy, unlikely candidate. Now, these promises end up building the foundation of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. 
probably the most significant covenant in all of Scripture. The rest of the Bible will be the unfolding and fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. There's three big promises here that, that I'll just summarize real quick. God promises Abraham land, um, really all the land that we currently call the Middle East. It's all promised to Abraham. He promises him seed, that is descendants. Abraham was a, a man without descendants at this point. He was 75 years old but didn't have any children because he and his wife were infertile. Okay, so God promises, I'll give you not just one, but countless descendants, enough to make a whole nation. And God promises him blessing. God will make his name great. He'll make Abraham famous in the world. God will give Abraham victory. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. Those who bless him will be blessed. God will so bless Abraham that he will become a conduit of blessing to the whole rest of the world. So land, seed, and blessing. That's the Abrahamic covenant. All of those incredible promises are given by God to Abraham based on what? based on grace. Abraham had done nothing at this point to deserve these promises. They come freely by grace. It's God's grace that empowers Abraham. But not just at the beginning of Abraham's journey. Uh, If you continue, uh, move down in chapter 12 to verse 10. So short time later, God has just given Abraham these incredible promises. Abraham has come to the promised land. And then look what happens starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah's wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. What's significant here is to see how quickly Abraham blows it. Abraham had just been given these incredible promises by God, and what does he do? Well, he comes to the promised land, this land that God had given him. He arrives, and it, it's not kind of working out like he expected. Circumstances aren't what Abraham had hoped for. There's a drought in the land, famine. And so rather than trust God to provide and stay in the land of promise, Abraham runs away. He runs south to the nation of Egypt. And, and as he's going south, he begins to become afraid. He realizes, my wife is very beautiful, Apparently a stunningly beautiful woman. She was 65 years old at this time, and yet world-renowned beauty. He begins to fear for his own safety. They're going to see how pretty Sarah is, and they're going to threaten my life. And so he decides to betray his wife. He's going to give his wife away to Pharaoh as if she was was just his sister. He puts at risk the seed promise. Remember, God promised, I'm going to give you countless descendants. Abraham says, I don't care. I'm giving her away because I don't want to die. I don't want to be threatened by Pharaoh. In other words, this is not the high point of Abraham's story. This is a low point. Abraham acts in incredible doubt and unfaithfulness to the Lord. And So how is God going to respond to that? So Abraham was a villain. God gave him these incredible promises. And then Abraham immediately goes out and blows it. How does God respond? Look in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. How does God respond? Does God show up and strike Abraham? No, he strikes the other guy, he strikes Pharaoh. 
God shows up and actually the first thing he does is supernaturally he restores Sarah to Abraham. He, he curses all of Pharaoh's household until Pharaoh gives up Sarah to return her to Abraham to protect the seed promise. But not only does he restore Sarah to Abraham, then he uses Pharaoh to boot Abraham back to the promised land. Did you notice that? Pharaoh's own army escorts Abraham back to the promised land. God works supernaturally to force Abraham into a position of obedience. That's incredible. God does what he has to do supernaturally to move Abraham into obedience. And all along the way, what does God do? He enriches the man. Pharaoh's sitting here giving him all these things so that by the time you begin chapter 13, Abraham is an incredibly wealthy man. He wasn't before. He was somewhat wealthy. Now he's incredibly wealthy. Why? Because he disobeyed and God showed up in grace. I love this account. God's grace isn't just in the promises to Abraham. God's grace is shown every time Abraham blows it. Rather than show up and curse him, rather than show up and judge him, God shows up in grace and restores Abraham. He brings about obedience in Abraham's life. He blesses Abraham in the middle of disobedience. It's incredible. Now you actually see that pattern throughout Abraham's life. Next account, chapter 13, we learn that even though God called Abraham to leave his relatives, Abraham didn't obey He kept Lot, his nephew, around. He stayed in that disobedience for many, many years. How did God respond? He didn't curse Abraham, he blessed him. He actually blessed both Abraham and Lot so much, their flocks grew so large, they couldn't live in the same land anymore. So chapter 13, they have to split apart. God enforces obedience through grace. Again, chapter 20, towards the end of Abraham's story, Abel do the same thing he did in chapter 12. He'll give in to fear. He'll give in to doubt. He'll give away his wife, Sarah. He'll betray her and betray the Lord. And yet again, God will step in in grace and supernaturally restore Sarah to Abraham and bless their socks off. Throughout Abraham's life, God is showing up in grace, empowering him through grace. The superpower of Abraham's life is not anything in himself. It's God's grace at work in him. That's true for every hero in scripture. We don't bring anything to the table. We're not the ones who make our lives great. It's God who does through his grace. That's the superpower empowering all of God's heroes, his grace at work in our lives. And that same grace is available to all of us today. God offers to every human being the gift of grace. Just like Abraham, our, our journey, our transformation from villain to hero, it begins in grace. God calls all of us in grace. Now, every human being is born on earth, not a hero, but a villain. That's Ephesians 2. All of us are born separated from God, disobeying God. We love sin. We are children of wrath. We are separated from God and unable to earn our way back. There's nothing we can do to fix that problem. And so in grace, God stepped down and sent his son to die for our sins in our place and rise from the dead. And now God offers to all human beings the free gift of grace, forgiveness of our sins and eternal relationship with him if we'll simply receive it. That's how you begin the transformation from villain to hero, receiving the gift of grace, the gift of eternal life. Simply receive it. Simply believe that God gives it to you. Now, for those of us who have received that gift, we have trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. God's grace is still what makes us great. Now that you are a follower of God, you are reconciled to God, the growth in your life, the development in your life, everything good in your life doesn't flow out of your works. It doesn't flow out of your efforts. It flows out of God's grace. God's grace is still what empowers you every day. God's grace is what makes you special. 
God's grace is what makes you great. If you want to live a great life, a life that really changes the world in positive ways, a life that makes an eternal impact, it's not based on your intelligence, on your wisdom, on your strength, on anything you bring to the table. It's based solely on the grace of God. It's God's grace that makes us great. It's his grace that has always empowered the heroes of Scripture. It's the second thing we learn from Abraham's life, second thing that we'll see throughout this summer. It's all about God's grace. That's the superpower that God uses to empower his heroes throughout Scripture and to empower us today. Third thing that we learn from Abraham's life is that throughout Scripture, God's heroes triumph through faith. God empowered Abraham through grace, but, but Abraham was not just a passive recipient in this story. Abraham had a part to play in his own story. God expected something of Abraham. God required something of Abraham, the same thing he requires of all of his heroes, and that is faith. That is the one and only requirement of God, faith. He requires that of all of his heroes. Now, um, as you look at Abraham's life, you have God's part. God is in grace empowering Abraham. And Abraham's part, Abraham's responding to grace in faith. Now, um, Abraham's life, it ebb and flows. He, he has ups and he has downs. Now, God's grace is always constant. So it's, it's not a lack of God's grace that explains Abraham's dips. It's, it's his part. It's his faith. When Abraham doesn't exercise faith, things turn out poorly. In fact, when when Abraham does not exercise trust in God, he ends up acting like a villain. That's really Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Abraham betrays his wife. He does this horrendous thing, this despicable thing. Why? Because of lack of faith. Really comes down to faith. Abraham doubts God's goodness. He doubts God's protection. He doubts God's plan. He doubts God's promises. And in doubt, he does a dastardly thing. He proves a villain because of his doubt. On the flip side, throughout Abraham's life, he does many heroic things and it's always by faith. When Abraham acts in faith, when he trusts in the character of God and the promises of God, he acts like a hero. You see it in Genesis chapter 14. Lot is is taken prisoner by these kings, by this huge army, and in faith, Abraham leads his his men in this daring night rescue. He conquers this whole army and, and frees Lot. It's an incredible act of faith. Abraham proves a courageous victor through faith. It's always about faith. When Abraham acts in faith, he's a hero. When he doesn't, he's a villain. Well, all that comes to a head. It comes to a climax in Genesis 22. Turn there. Genesis 22 is the climax of the whole story of Genesis. If, if, uh, if Abraham's life was a movie, this would be the climax of the movie. This is the big moment of the movie. Genesis 22 is God's uh, gift to Abraham of an opportunity to become a hero. It's really what Genesis 22 is about. God gives Abraham the opportunity to prove himself a hero in the plan of God and change the world in positive ways. So uh, let's look at Genesis 22. Let's see this opportunity that God gives to Abraham to step up as a hero. Start in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now let's pause for a moment. Let's, let's talk about this for a moment. We're specifically told this is a test. God is giving Abraham a test, an opportunity to prove himself faithful, to prove himself a hero. What do we see about that test? Well, first of all, this test is completely unexpected. 
This test comes out of the blue. God never said anything about sacrifice your child. There had never been a child sacrifice anywhere in scripture up to this point. This, this was never something that God talked about or even hinted about. It's completely unexpected. Second, notice um, this, this is really a pretty illogical test, at least from a human perspective. Think about what you know about God. Is it logical that God would call you to sacrifice your child? Doesn't that seem to go against everything Abraham knew about God? God is faithful, God is good, God is gracious. How does that logically fit with sacrifice my child? More than that, though, this isn't just any child, is it? This is Isaac, whom God had promised. It's through Isaac that I'll fulfill the promises. It's through Isaac that I will build a nation. Abraham had heard God say that. Genesis 17, Isaac is the one that I choose through whom I will build a nation and fulfill these promises. This test, this trial, it's illogical. And finally, Notice how painful it is. God did not call Abraham to give up his tent or his gold or his herds or his servants. He called him to give up the son he had waited for 75, well, waited 99 years to have. Abraham was 99 years old when Isaac was born. His wife was uh, 90. So Abraham and Sarah had waited decades and decades for this boy. Through decades and decades of infertility, that's what God calls him to give up. I cannot imagine a more painful test. I now, this is the first time I've taught on Abraham and I have a boy of my own. I sit in my office this week trying to imagine what would I do. I, I, I can't imagine it. I can't possibly wrap my head around this test. I, I just, I, I can't do it. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Abraham. He waited decades and decades for this boy, this boy he loves, and now God says, put him to death for me. Unbelievably painful test. Now this test puts before Abraham a choice between two options. Abraham can step up in faith. He can believe, well, somehow God is good enough and gracious enough and wise enough that he's going to take care of this. I'm going to trust him even though it seems crazy, even though it seems illogical and painful and horrible. I'm going to trust him. Or, as he did many times before, he could choose doubt. He could choose to say, I don't think God knows what he's talking about. I don't think God's good. I don't don't think I heard God clearly enough. And and he could have, in doubt, run away. That's what Abraham often did. He could stall or he could run away. Those are the choices before Abraham. Is he going to step up in faith and do something crazy? Or is he going to step up in doubt, as he often had before, and stall or run away? Well, let's see. Let's pick it up in verse 3. How does Abraham respond to this test? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men and with him, with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire of the wood, and and where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham chooses the first option. He chooses in faith to obey. And notice a couple things about this obedience, this this faith. It's pretty remarkable. Notice verse 3. When does he set out on the journey? Early in the morning. He'd heard from God at night. As soon as it's daybreak, he's getting on the donkey and heading out. And I've got to be honest with you. If I hear something like this from God, I'm not heading out the next morning. I'm going to go talk to people. I'm going to seek wise counsel. Maybe I'm going to fast and pray for a week. This is a huge command. I'm I'm not going to run out there, but... 
Abraham does. He does not stall. He does not delay. He immediately steps out in obedience. This is incredible obedience. Notice, not only is the obedience immediate, it's also unhesitating. How long did it take to leave where he was and get to Mount Moriah? Three days. Can you imagine three days? You're traveling, and and he's not traveling alone. Who's with him? Isaac. Whole time, three days, he's sitting there talking to Isaac, probably having fun together along the road on the way to Mount Moriah. They're out camping together, father and son, all the while Abraham having this incredible weight upon his shoulders, knowing what's about to happen. Can't imagine what it would have felt like for Abraham to put his son Isaac to bed each of those three nights, puts him to bed, Isaac's falling asleep, Abraham's sitting there at the fire, and what is he thinking? I cannot believe what I'm about to do. I can't believe that I'm about to kill, slay this boy. And yet Abraham marches resolutely to Mount Moriah. He never stops. He never diverges. He doesn't head back to Egypt. He resolutely marches to Mount Moriah, gets his son, gets the wood, immediately heads up the mountain, binds his son, builds the altar, picks up the knife, raises it in the air. His obedience is unhesitating. It's incredible obedience. Now, it's really neat. Later in Scripture, God gives us a commentary. He tells us what was going on in Abraham's mind. It's really good for us. We get to find out what was Abraham thinking. I can't imagine how hard this would be. What was going through his mind that enabled him to be able to step up in this incredibly difficult test? We find out in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he tells us what Abraham was thinking. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, the son of the promise. It was he, Isaac, to whom it was said, and Isaac your descendant shall be called. Isaac's the one. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. There's the answer right there at the end. How could Abraham step up in such incredible obedience? Because in faith he believed that God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead. Now you and I look at that and we say, well, that's great faith. You know, that, that's great. Isaac, you know, Abraham is looking at all the times that God had raised people from the dead and he's saying he could do it again. Just one problem. When Abraham lived, how many people had been raised from the dead? Zero. How many times had God talked about raising people from the dead? Never. It's never mentioned. By the time you get to Genesis 22, there's no hint of God raising people from the dead. God's never talked about it. God's never done it. So Abraham has no example to look back at. He can't look at some example and say, look when God raised Lazarus from the dead. No, Lazarus is 2,000 years later. He's not heard anything about resurrection. And yet Abraham's faith is so great that he concludes from just what he knows about God, God is good, God is faithful, God is powerful. He concludes without any help, without any hint from God that if God even has to raise Isaac from the dead, he will do whatever it takes to be faithful to his promises. That is incredible faith. Abraham has heard nothing about resurrection, but he concludes God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises, to take care of my boy. Now, look at how God responds to that faith. Look, starting in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So pause for a second. Um, Abraham is completely obeying. 
He, he is exercising incredible faith. God stops him in the act when the knife is at the last moment. It's held above his head. God shows up and stops Abraham. He, he saves, he delivers Isaac, and he provides supernaturally a substitute. All of a sudden, there's this ram, and, God, and Abraham is able to offer the ram instead. It's a, it's a figure of what Jesus will do. It's a really significant moment in Scripture. God provides. He proves faithful to Abraham. But then look, let's see what results come from Abraham's faith. Start in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is very significant. God had made promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And he had gathered those promises together into a covenant in Genesis 15. And yet it's not till Genesis 22, till after Abraham proves a hero by stepping up in faith, that God finally seals the covenant with an oath. This is actually the first oath you will find anywhere in the Abraham account. First time God has shown up to Abraham and made an oath of the covenant. This is when the covenant becomes official. This is when the covenant is sealed. God had made these promises to Abraham, but Abraham had to respond in faith. Abraham had to respond in faith to receive all of the blessings of God into his life. He was related to God through faith, but to receive all these promises, to enjoy all these promises, he had to prove a hero. He had to step up in faith. It's not till he steps up in faith that God speaks from heaven and says, that's it, I seal the covenant. I seal it on an oath. I swear on myself, you, Abraham, and your descendants will have this covenant forever. And that's proven true. No matter what Abraham's descendants have done, they've proven incredibly unfaithful at times. They've always possessed this covenant because of the obedience and faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith brings the fulfillment, the seal of this covenant. From this point on in Scripture, every time Abraham's descendants will look back at Abraham, will look back at the Abrahamic covenant, they will always look at this moment, at this event. This is the moment when the covenant is given to them, when the covenant is sealed. And it's sealed how? By the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham proved faithful. Because he exercised faith in God, they now enjoy forever these incredible promises. In other words, it's by faith that Abraham changed the course of history. It's by faith that he became the father of the nation of Israel. It's all about faith. All of God's heroes become heroes by faith. That's the essential ingredient of a hero in Scripture, of a, of a hero in the kingdom of God. It's all about faith. The most important thing about us, about me, the most important thing that, that I do, it's, it's not about my intelligence, it's not about my wisdom, it's not about my fame, it's not about my accomplishments. The most important thing about me is my faith. God's part is grace, my part is faith. If you want to be a success in life, it's not by your wisdom, it's not by your intelligence, it's not by your strength, it's not by your money, it's by faith. Faith is the one essential ingredient God requires from all his heroes. And that leads us to our application this morning. If we want to become the kind of people that God uses to make an eternal impact on this world, that God uses heroically to advance his kingdom, we have to act in faith. We have to believe. First and foremost, we have to believe that God wants to use us. That God loves to use crooked sticks like us to hit home runs. It's the first thing God wants you to learn from the example of Abraham. He wants you to believe that God wants to use you. 
God wants to take you and transform you into a hero and use you to change the course of history, to make an eternal impact on this planet. Now, now belief that God wants to use you means that you begin to see yourself as God sees you. God sees every person in this room either as a hero of the faith or a hero in training. If you are alive, you're either a hero or you're a hero in training. God's not given up on you. No matter what you've done, no matter your liabilities, no matter your weaknesses, no matter your failures, you are a hero in training in the eyes of God. Because he loves to use people with liabilities, with limitations, with weaknesses, and turn them into heroes who do extraordinary things. So see yourself as God sees you. Believe that you are a hero in training in the kingdom of God. And with that in mind, second application, I challenge you to ask God to do whatever it takes to grow you into a hero of the faith. See, we grow into heroes of the faith through tests. That's, that's the word used here, through tests, through trials, through difficulties. It's not in the easy times of life that we become heroes of the faith. It's through the difficult times. When I see myself as a hero in training, it really changes the way I look at my life. When I see difficulties, when I see tri- uh, trials and challenges, I don't see those as curses from God. I see those actually as blessings from God. The difficult times, the trials, those are the things that God is using to shape me and grow me and expand me and mold me into a hero in his kingdom. That's what he uses to give me an opportunity to become a hero of the faith. That's what he did in Abraham's life. That's what he wants to do in all of our lives. It's through the difficult times that God shapes us into heroes of the faith. So this summer, as we walk through these unlikely heroes of the Old Testament, my encouragement to every one of us is to see ourselves as very similar to them. Ordinary people, broken people, weak and limited people whom God wants to call and shape and transform and empower and use to do extraordinary things. That's what God wants to do with every one of us. So let's end by turning to the Lord in prayer and asking him to help us to believe it. Lord God, thank you so much that you have given us your grace. Thank you that the thing that's great about our lives is the thing that's good about our lives is your grace in us. It's not what we bring to the table, it's what you bring, Lord. Thank you for your grace at work in us who don't deserve it, who are unworthy. Thank you that Abraham proves an example that you can use a crooked stick to hit a home run, Lord. You can use those who are unlikely, who are unworthy, who are ordinary, who are broken, and through them do extraordinary things. And so, Father, uh, we just all want to come before you, and right now I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to bow before you and offer our lives to you. Lord, do whatever it takes in each one of us to shape us and grow us and use us to be heroes of the faith, to be people who make an eternal impact on this world for your son, Jesus Christ, who do things that bring glory to you as a God who can use a crooked stick to hit a home run. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you want to use us. Thank you that um, through the power of your son, Jesus Christ, we can all do extraordinary things to bring glory to your name. We thank you for all this in his name. Amen. All right, God bless you this week. See you next week.